Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Diabetics Doing Things. We are telling the amazing stories of people with diabetes all over the world. And I'm very excited for today's interview uh, because we, as we have we've talked about in previous episodes, Eritrea and I are, are not experts uh, in policy or even health, and we don't provide medical advice on this podcast, but we get to bring in amazing experts who are well-versed in all things, uh, both medical and then policy in today's conversation. So I'd really like to welcome Shana Casper from T1 International. She's the Policy and Advocacy Director at T1 International. And I'm very excited to talk a little bit about policy today and really dig into the big question that we're asking is, where is the $35 insulin? And so that's going to be kind of our, our headline for today's episode. But Shana, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. It's great to connect with you. And a funny story just behind the scenes. So Liz, the founder of T1 International and CEO of T1 International, came on the show many years ago. I was like one of the first guests. And uh, her episode was the first time I had experienced any sort of like podcast hiccups in terms of recording. So we had to take and record that episode again. So that wow. she was like the first uh, guinea pig. She was overseas. That was the first like time, you know, time jump that we did that was over uh, more than a couple of hours. So lots of firsts uh, for Liz. And, and thank you uh, to Liz for connecting us today. Yeah. And I, I didn't know that. That was, yeah, many years ago. I think that oh, I was re-listening in preparation and that was our third anniversary at T1I. And now we are in our 10th year. So we're having our 10-year our summit coming right up later this month. That's exciting. Well, we will definitely want to include a link in, to, to that summit in the show notes. But let's get started like we usually do because you also live with type 1 diabetes. So uh, Shani, why don't you just tell us how you joined the type 1 diabetes family? Yeah. So I actually joined the movement years before I was diagnosed when my little sister was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes and immediately started going to you know, diabetes summer camp and having such like a robust and rich like diabetes community. And, you know, jumping ahead here, she's now a, a certified diabetes educator. So that's pretty cool. <laughs> you know, it's definitely a big part of our family. And but when she was diagnosed, I was put into a clinical trial that eventually led to the, you know, do drugs that have recently come out. But that I was. I was I I was found out that I had diabetes my first my first week of senior year when I went in for doing the trial and they said, actually, we can't do this because your blood sugar is too high. So I was really, really lucky that I got caught so, so early. And I, well, when I was first diagnosed, I went from the hospital to an Occupy Homes rally and was really politicized already. And what I saw in a lot of the diabetes community that my sister was a part of is that they were, you know, being funded by pharma and were that I didn't really see a home for me in a lot of that diabetes community. And it wasn't until I rationed insulin myself and, and that I really realized I needed to have more diabetes community in my life, more than just my sister. And I then heard Liz on a podcast about about T1 International. I was like, oh my gosh, this is the group that I've been looking for. And I have uh, been on the team for about two years now at T1I. Well, and you had sent us a link about your diagnosis story on another podcast, America Dissected. And you, you mentioned that you had experienced rationing. And in that episode, you, you mentioned that that was sort of a light bulb moment for you, that you had not 
you didn't really know that what you were experiencing was rationing. Could you talk a little bit about that story? Yeah, I was, I, I was, I was organizing on environmental health issues. So I was doing policy and advocacy on on envi- on drinking water contamination and fossil fuel infrastructure. And I was at a conference away from home for the weekend, and you know, packed up my bag threw in a vial of insulin for, 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 you know, when I had to refill my pump. And when I went to go fill up my pump, I opened up the box and it was empty. I had accidentally put an empty box back in the fridge. So I like let everyone at the conference. That's the most relatable thing I've ever heard because I do that exact same thing. I've like now have to like remind myself to throw the boxes away. It's incredible. I was just like, how did I not check this? So wild. And yes, I went to the you know, went to the conference organizers and said, you know, this is going to take me all day. This is going to take me hours and hours of being on hold with my doctor, with my insurance company. Like we've all been there. We've all been had to figure this out. And so I finally got my prescription sent over to a local pharmacy. I like walked in the, you know, all the way out there to go pick it up. I knew my insurance wasn't going to cover it because I'd already gotten the fill. I knew it was going to cost me hundreds of dollars to get one vial of insulin just to make it home. And when I handed over my credit card to get that filled up, it was declined. And I was just so frustrated and so burnt out by this whole process already that I said, you know what? It's only one more day of this conference. I can just pull out the dregs that are in my pump. I'm, I don't want to bother anyone. I don't want to like cause, a, cause an issue. And I, I made it home. And that was really lucky and really, I, I didn't realize until later how scary that actually was. Like, it didn't really hit me until months later that that was not okay. Like, why did I not feel okay asking for help? Why did I not feel okay calling on like the diabetes community and needing to, and and didn't even realize that that was an experience that I was rationing until even I had started working in the, with you and I, and and more directly in the diabetes community. Because I was like, I'm not a person who rations insulin. That's not who I like, I, I, I have my shit together. I always get my prescriptions filled. And it's like, nope, that's, that's, you know, even the best laid plans stuff goes wrong. That, that's right. And I think it's such a, a, you know, it's interesting because you said a couple of things there. Like the first was like, you didn't want to be a burden to other people when you're really just like desperately trying to scramble to make sure that you're able to continue doing the bare minimum of like living. Right. So, you know, I think that's something that I know a lot of people feel myself as well as like so much of our lives with type one diabetes are normal and we don't feel like we, you know, and I think this is also something in the community that we've been reconciling and, and definitely at diabetics doing things like, even though we don't feel disabled most of the time, very much are living with a disability, very much identify and want to stand with our more disabled brothers and sisters to, to say like, you know, Hey, this is a disability is covered in the Americans with Disabilities Act. And just because we feel like it's not a burden on other people most times, like when we need help or when we need a little extra accommodation, you are not a burden. You right. like you are just doing your best to to live. And I also think like that that other feeling of, well, I'm not I don't ration my insulin. Like I, I have my shit together, right? And the idea that there should be this shame around having to ration or having making a simple mistake, like grabbing an empty box uh, of insulin before you go on a trip or forgetting to pack extra insulin or only having enough in the vial that's that's not going to be able to carry you for the duration of that trip. Like those are not things to feel ashamed about. I think they're just very normal. And unfortunately, in this country, 
and we can and now as I think is a good uh, point to shift over to some of the policy uh, discussions that we're getting into. If we were in Canada, you could just walk into the pharmacy and pay cash over the counter uh, for a pretty reasonable amount and get the insulin that you need. In Europe and many other countries, very similar. But in the U.S., we don't have that luxury. And so, kind of getting into yeah. getting into like the, the the overarching discussion of you know it's been a few months, almost six months since the insulin manufacturers announced before the U.S. Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee that they were rolling out programs for copay caps for you know what we would effectively call like $35 a month for your insulin. But many patients in the U.S. have yet to see any actual impact on the price of their drug with you know even ones with commercial insurance who theoretically should qualify for those benefits. So what's going on? We, we've got these copay caps that nationally and in the media and all of our friends who follow policy who don't have diabetes are sending us all these links and we're like, hey, congratulations, insulin is cheap now. But we're not seeing the benefits yet of, of, of patients actually getting those, those discounts. Yeah. You, you asked like eight different so, questions there. And I want to, can I, can I take a step back? And I mean, we didn't even yes. ask the question, but I want to start just by saying that rationing is not rare, just to go back to what you were saying as well. And that we know what we, at T1 International, we run an out-of-pocket cost survey. And that shows that Globally, one in four patients with type 1 diabetes has rationed insulin. And that, as for my own experience, when I filled out that survey, I didn't say I was rationing insulin. That number is probably really under undercounted. And at T1 International, we have a goal that no one should be spending more than 5% of their country's per capita income on insulin and testing supplies. And so in the U.S., that is $222 a month. So that's less than the cost of one vial of any of the insulins that I use. That's less than the coinsurance for one month of Dexcom sensors for me. And I've got gold peer insurance, you know. And outside of the U.S., we, we, we see this, you know, one in four patients is, is rationing insulin as well. And in some countries, that's as high as 50 or even 80, 85, you know, almost 90 percent of their per capita income is being spent on insulin and testing supplies. So this is not a personal failure of rationing insulin. It's really a structural and you know, systemic problem. And so that's really why at T1 International, we're calling on insulin manufacturers to lower the list prices of all of their insulins. And so back in, back in March, the Big three insulin manufacturers did announce that they're lowering the list prices of some of their insulin starting at the end of this year, you know, for January of 2024. We need to make sure that lowered insulin prices are enforceable for, for everyone. So that's why globally, you know, we're calling on the WHO to set strong affordability and access goals for insulin and to support countries in providing, getting insulin to, to their residents who need it. And that's why in the U.S., you know, we are calling for regulation on these insulin price caps overall. So while these insulin manufacturers have announced that they're lowering some of these insulin prices, first of all, it's not for all insulins, but only for about half of the kind of main insulins on the market. So we really want to make sure that insulin prices are lowered for all insulins and for all patients. 
So a lot of the policies that have been discussed are copay caps and setting a, a cap on copays for insulin per dosage form per type is a really important, you know, first step. So for uh, last year and starting in January of this year, January of 2023, all Medicare beneficiaries are able to receive insulin for $35 a month, you know, per you know, insulin form and type. So that's, you know, for short acting insulin and long acting insulin for vials and pens, that can still add up to, you know, over a hundred dollars a month pretty easily. But that is a really important first step. And what we're now seeing some policies being introduced is the Affordable Insulin Now Act, which is being introduced by Senator Kennedy of Louisiana and Senator Warnock of Georgia. And that's at the $35 insulin copay cap per dosage form per type for people with private insurance, not just people who are in Medicare. And what's so exciting about this policy is that it also covers patients without insurance. That goes a, will go a really long way to supporting patients from rationing insulin due to cost. The biggest problem with these copay cap policies are that they don't usually apply for people without insurance or for people with high deductible plans. Those are the people most at risk for rationing. And they can also cause this reverse incentive of having these corporations raise the price of insulin because they know that insulin manufacturers will pay for that diff or insulin for insurance companies will pay for the difference between the list price of insulin and that copay price. So that's why we really want to make sure that there's a price cap on insulin. And so as, as you said, in March, these insulin manufacturers announced that they were going to lower the prices. And the first one that they were going to lower was the generic of Humalab, which is called Insulin List Pro. That was supposed to go, you know, right now it's around $80, um, although we've seen it on, in pharmacies for over $300. And they were going to lower that down to $25 starting May 1st. However, May 1st came around and I went to the pharmacy and I was going to get charged $150. You know, it was going to be about $90 with coupons. And other patients from around the country went to their local pharmacies and they were also not getting quoted $25 a vial. And so and yep. that's, that is the impetus for today's conversation, right? Yeah. Which is we all saw and all of our friends who don't have diabetes sent us all the links of, of all, right. let's celebrate the good news. And I think, like you said, uh, it doesn't address the people who need the most help for the high deductible plans and the uninsured, but a common theme and even we thought about like something to celebrate is any legal and like political policy growth or I guess progress to lower insulin prices to patients is a good thing. But if that if patients actually aren't able to get it, then it doesn't really matter. So I think that's where uh when we were planning this conversation, we're like, okay, well, this was yes, we were like, hey, this is a small this is a big victory in policy and progress. And for people who have private or commercial insurance, they're going to be able to get some of the insulin for $25 a month. And that's a victory. But then come to find out, myself included, like I'm going to check out, I have great, I have great insurance that I pay a lot of money for. And I still had to pay the same that I did prior to all of these Senate hearings. And so, you know, I asked my pharmacist and say they had no idea about these programs. And so I was like, okay, well, I need to have the experts here to talk about a, what should patients who meet the criteria for these copay caps do if they're not getting them at the pharmacy? And B, what's causing, what's driving this, you know, seemingly it's a law that was passed that should go all the way through and everyone should know about what's causing the issues for people not being able to get insulin at that cost. Yeah. So the 
insulin price reductions um, across the board don't go into effect until 2024. These kind of voluntary coupons to, to lower the copays for patients with private insurance, they're totally voluntary. So there's no place where you can send in a written complaint or to um, uh, recognize that this isn't working for you because these are voluntary programs by the manufacturers. And so that's why it's so important that we push for political change. And that's why we are you know, advocating for this fall, Congress needs to pass policies that we that that lower the price of insulin for patients. And the best way to do that is by setting a price cap, but recognizing that's not really an option that's really on the table right now. Politically, we're really pushing for getting insulin copay cap for all for patients with private insurance and for patients without insurance. And the time to do that is right now. We have a few more weeks left in this session before the holidays come in and then it is 2024, which is an election year. And all of a sudden it gets a lot, a lot harder to pass meaningful policy besides these must pass bills. And so that's why we're, you know, calling on everyone. If you have experience going into the pharmacy and, you know, not, not hadn't been able to get access to these lower, you know, these promised lower prices insulins, like, like I did and trying to get insulin list pro to, to, to write to your senator, tell your senators what your experience is, because they definitely, like every lobby meeting we're going to, we're having to explain like the very basics of what it's like to live with diabetes. And so they, a lot of folks think that this problem is solved and that we have gotten these commitments, that we have lowered the price, the copay caps for insulin for patients with Medicare. Those are all really great things, and those are not impacting people who are most at risk of insulin rationing. People, the most patients in the U.S. still still need more regulation in order to make sure that our we're we're not going to be rationing insulin due to cost. You touched on something there that's very challenging for me because you know, as a person who does a lot of communication, I'm a guy with a podcast. I've been for a long time, and I run a marketing agency. It really is difficult for me because, like you said, the narrative, the high level, like for the casual observer, they think that this problem is solved and that they're reading in CNN and they're reading in the Washington Post and the New York Times that you know, the price of insulin has been capped. And, you know, this this session and the manufacturers. Now, I understand, you know, in, in some ways now why those CEOs make as much money as they do, because they are there to control stock price and to. Uh, and to speak on PR talking points and and sound really confident. And they did that. And I think like that is a, you know, sort of I get in this doom loop of thinking of like, well, how does our, how can we, you know, with our advocacy, with our patient voices, with our small community, how do we overcome these like insurmountable, seemingly insurmountable some momentum in the public eye that uh, our relatives and our friends are seeing and they're like celebrating for us, but the actual benefits have not even come close to trickling down to the people who need it most yet. Yeah. I think the most important, uh, I think we, we, we can only hold on to so many facts in our brain at once. But what we know in communications is that sharing personal stories and sharing, just sharing stories in general are much more memorable. And so being able to, uh, as patients, being able to have these experiences of going to the pharmacy and seeing that these things aren't working and asking those questions of, of why, why aren't these what I'm hearing in the news? Why is that an odd applying to me? And that's really the most important first step 
And then being able to communicate that experience and that story to decision makers is, is the most important way to be able to, to, to drive policy change. You know, we can, we can share all these numbers. You know, we can share that one in four patients is rationing insulin due to cost. We can share that insulin list grow was supposed to be $82 a vial. But when I went to the pharmacy, I was quoted much higher than that. And it's actually, they committed to having it be $25 a vial. We, we have, you know, just so many of these different numbers that we can spit out, but that's not what, what changes hearts and minds. It's really about making sure that we, we share these personal stories. We want to know that, you know, sometimes sharing your rationing story or, or sharing that personal story can be really re-traumatizing. And that's not what we want to have happen either. We, if, if you are sharing your personal story, it should be a powerful and it should, it should be empowering. It should be, it should be politicizing. And if, you know, we would love to, you know, connect with anyone if they're interested in, in sharing their story with their senator in that way as well. Also say at T1 International, we have a form that you can fill out to. I to was like just going to ask. There you go. So you can, you know, sign up for our newsletter at T1International.com. And in that newsletter, we have all those links to all of our current actions. And right now we are trying to get folks to email email their senators, tell them, sharing your personal story about why it's so interesting is why it's so important to, to pass policy, to lower the, the copay, set a copay cap for patients with private insurance and for patients without insurance. Yeah. I think that was the call to action that, you know, I wanted to make sure that we, that we come across because I think people who are listening to this are like, okay, cool. Where do I go? But you know, there isn't always a, a clear path and every Senator's website has a little bit of a different yeah. UX. And, you know, I, so I'm glad that we can link to, to that form that you guys have so that those individual stories can be told, because I think you're right. And, and this is something I think I learned during the pandemic is, you know, when we as humans see large numbers or large statistics, we don't associate them with people. We just see them as, you know, f- just factoids. And it's just, it's kind of a weird, you know, part of our human evolution is that we just don't have the ability to see or to comprehend what ha- what is happening to a million people versus when we see, hey, this person has shared these stories. And I think that's why it's so impactful. You know, some of the stories that we've shared about and that T1 International shares about people who have rationed insulin and unfortunately lost their lives. And that becomes very tangible for people who don't even live with diabetes because they know somebody who does. And you know, just living on those margins, like you said, we're all closer to rationing than we may think. And I think whether we're, you know, gainfully employed and have great insurance today, that's not guaranteed tomorrow. And I, I wanted to kind of use that as a point to transition because in our original questions, we were going to talk about some of the outside programs. We in Dallas, we were fortunate to be close by the Mark Cuban Cost Plus Drugs Company, and they have you know kind of been communicating different programs through us over the course of this year. And unfortunately, some of those continue to be rolled back or they're based on coupons that you know you were touching on earlier. There's no requirement from manufacturers to continue some of these patient assistant program patient assistance programs. And when they go and they announce that they're, you know, will be Lispro at a certain price, there's no that's not forever. And you know, even when patients have those coupons, they go to the pharmacy and they may not be active. So how can how can we, you know, as we're introducing these policies, is price caps obviously, you know, signed in by legislation will allow that to continue. But just something that as we see these programs, like they're not guaranteed. Like we, you know, there's no sense of accountability necessarily for the manufacturers to continue those programs. Yeah. 
Yeah, just to repeat what you said in a different way, manufacturer-sponsored cost-sharing programs without strong price-cutting measures and equitable insulin access, these are not answers to the insulin crisis. They are always time-limited. There is no guarantee that these programs will continue to exist long-term. You know, companies can and have ended them at, you know, any time. And this can just put patients at risk yet again after going, jumping through all these hoops. And so a lot of times these, these, these programs can have really extensive paperwork and require the time and attention of healthcare professionals and prescribers who often don't get compensated for that time. And then this reliance on coupons and saving cards and patient assistance programs can think that we have this problem solved and can circumvent efforts to use more cost-effective you know, generic or biosimilar drugs or really change policies to make sure that we are making making insulin affordable and accessible to all. So yeah, there's like three main types of manufacturer-sponsored cost-sharing programs for insulin. So the, the first one are these copay card programs, which have gotten tons of press the past few months. Because this is where the insulin manufacturers are saying anyone can use these coupon, these copay cards to be able to, you know, with their private insurance to reduce that out-of-pocket payment. I, I, I don't know if you guys have tried them, but they're really easy to print out. They're less easy to use at the pharmacy counter and often just get denied depending on what the pharmacist's ability is to be able to use them. The insulin saving card programs can be used by some patients with private insurance whose plan doesn't cover a specific insulin or those without insurance and can reduce that amount for patients paying out of pockets, you know, like these, these copay card programs. And then patient assistance programs are often, it's a much higher level of application, needing to have a lot more information and providing a lot more uh, material to the to these insulin manufacturers directly, that information that's not protected under HIPAA laws, that is not necessarily confidential information. And these programs may provide insulin without out-of-pocket costs to some patients without insurance, um, but they, again, can be denied or just canceled at any time as well. And um, I think some of the stories that we've seen is just because you're approved for the, the program one time does not guarantee that you'll be approved for it again. And so, you know, for people who are unemployed for longer periods of time than they anticipated. Obviously, there's been so many people in a variety of industries that are laid off this year. And so, you know, whenever I see those numbers, 18,000 people laid off at Amazon, I think, okay, well, there's quite a few people in there that are going to need not just insulin, but also other medications that they're not going to be able to have coverage for immediately. And so, yeah, those those patient assistance programs, like you said, you know, I, it's been a long time since I had to go through the idea of potentially using one and it's a significant amounts of paperwork and also you know again kind of up to their standard as to whether you deserve based on how much money you've earned previously or how much money you're currently earning whether they will cover that or not and to your point earlier you know of wanting to reduce that that cost to $222 a month based on the income per capita here in the United States what we've seen basically, you know, and, and again, this is not, you know, this research is subject to the public data that we're uh, accessible to here at Diabetics Doing Things, that the estimates are more of like $9,500 per year of diabetes out-of-pocket costs, even for, and, and higher, as, as you were saying, like, so for, the, for people who are uninsured as well. And that includes things like CGM sensors and insulin pump supplies and test strips and glucometers. So, you know, it's not just the insulin price, but it's also all of the other things that go into a life with diabetes. 
Yeah. We, we know that living with diabetes is really expensive. And that's why these programs get used. We know that there is a need for, you know, we, we, we know that people are using these programs because it is too, it is often too expensive to like live and be able to thrive with, with diabetes. And just to say too, that these programs are not new, you know, no matter what the media has been saying, it's, the media has really been touting these patient assistance programs kind of as the generic term for these three different types of, of programs for, for years. And since the big threes, uh, in the, the big three insulin manufacturers have announced some of these price measures in March of 2023, some of these programs have lowered some of their prices. So, for example, Sanofi lowered their program from $99 a month to $35 a month starting in July. Um, but others have remained the same. And as we said, you know, these can change at, at any time or just stop offering, stop offering them altogether. And they're also often used to support just using the the name brand or to even product top patients over to more expensive insulins. So they might be, you know, cheaper in the short term, but then you have this prescription for this newer, more expensive insulin, and then you can't get the biosimilar or the generic when those are made available online as well. So we want to make sure that patients have access to the insulin that they need and the insulin that work best for their bodies. That's really why we need to make sure that we're not relying on websites or patient assistance or, or manufacturer-sponsored assistance programs, because those are really no replacement for good public policy to make sure that patients with, with diabetes can get access to all of the insulin and, and supplies and everything that we need to be able to survive and to achieve our dreams. You know, I think we've all, if you're involved in the diabetes community, and, and probably many uh, people themselves have all experienced an insurance company dictating which insulin that the insurance company thinks that you should take, whether or not you've taken uh, Novolog or a Humalog, all of your life with diabetes. Uh, and for many uh, people, they can't take one or the other because of the way their body responds. And so uh, there was a great video on TikTok. I, the name of the creator is, is slipping my mind right now, but she was basically breaking down how to write a prior authorization. Uh, but again, that's like putting the benefit or, or putting the burden of, of proof on the patient to just prove that, yes, in fact, we still do have type 1 diabetes. And unless we've missed something, there has been no cure. And you know, the insulin that you need to work for your body, patients need to, patients and their providers, you know, need to be the ones that dictate that, not insurance companies. I do want to talk, we've mentioned the form that, that's on T1 International site to, to email senators and to get, you know, to tell your story, you know, to Congress. But these copay caps and, and the, the legislation that's been introduced as a result and the price caps that are coming are the result of continuous passionate patient advocacy. So. What can patients continue to do? We've got National Diabetes Awareness Month coming up. What can we do to con continue to improve access to, for insulin for all? Yeah, at T1 International, we have set a number of different goals in order to move towards this vision of insulin for all and to make sure that no one with diabetes is spending more than 5% of their um, country's per capita income on, on insulin and diabetes supplies. And what that looks like in the U.S. is we're working on price cap you know, policies. We're working on patent reform. We're working on pharma taxes reform. And then at the state level, we have priorities of passing Alex laws, which are emergency access to insulin laws. We're working on Kevin's law, which is expanding pharmacist scope of practice. 
And, you know, right now, 42 states have passed Kevin's laws of, of some court order of another. So you can go to the pharmacy counter and make sure that you can get the access to this necessary drug, or, you know, regardless of kind of where your prescription is at at that moment. We had uh, a, a Texas legislation discord back in 2020 that, that helped Ke Texas pass Kevin's law. So that was really awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. And then, yeah, also working on on public pharma, so public production and public manufacturing of insulin, public PBMs, pharmacy benefit managers. It's really exciting work happening in California right now and other places. And then also on non-medical mid-year plan switching. So this is more of making sure that your 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 formulary from your insurance doesn't say, oh, just kidding, you've been on this drug for however long you have. We're gonna switch you to a different insulin because that doesn't usually work as a one-to-one trade-in very often. And so those are the, you know, campaigns that we're working on. And we really rely on our, on our chapters, on our leadership, on our working groups at T1 International. So and we've got 41 chapters in, in states across the country. We've got 21 countries across the globe working on these campaigns and, and building community together, building, you know, building our skills, building our, our training for, for doing effective advocacy and organizing and building a network and building relationships among each other. So we also have a communities of color working group and we have a families united for affordable insulin working group that's made up of loved ones who have lost folks due to insulin rationing to provide that kind of mental health support and to provide community in, in this like really challenging world and work that we're doing. And so, yeah, definitely want to encourage folks to, to check out that work if any of that sounds interesting. Also, we have our summit coming up on September 30th, and this is a one day all kind of all in, you know, with presentations by all these working groups, by chapter leaders across the globe, and will be a really great opportunity to hear more about what's happening in the Insulin for All fight and lots of different ways and opportunities to get involved. And if folks are interested in signing up for that, it's t1international.com slash summit 2023. Awesome. You, you even stole my, uh, my plug at the end. I was going to say, go. make sure you got to visit t1international.com and congrats on 10 years, uh, t1 international Liz and the team. I know, you know, you guys, you know, continuing to, to grow and, and grow your impact as well. So I definitely want to, it's, it's funny, like three years being on the podcast, you know, all those years ago that, that with that interview with Liz, we've been doing this a long time and there's a lot of work still to be done. So we're glad that we can do that together. I think, again, like the the power of community, there's a lot of really exciting legislation coming up that we'll also link in the show notes, both on the state level and the national level. So for folks who are really interested in getting involved in policy and longtime listeners, we'll be happy to provide you guys and connect connect you with those resources. Shana, thank you for for coming on the show. I think it was great to get to know you and kind of like even working back and forth via email over the past couple of weeks. You know, I'm I'm just glad that we have people like you who are advocating for us on the policy side, and you know, continue to reach out if there's any way we can continue to support you guys' work at Team International. And yeah, yeah let's not let seven years pass between podcasts again. That's that's a long time. It is. We just grown so much in that. Time. I just like I'm like that is so incredible that that was three years into T1I and now we're we're ten years in. And we've been able to grow and we've been able to do that because of, you know, support from the community, both in their 
you know, in, in our community, in the insulin for all communities, volunteering and leadership and also in contributions too. So I'll just, you know, say, make a plug there too. If people want to contribute to T1 International, that'd be amazing as well. We are totally pharma. We don't accept any funding from pharma. We're a totally independent 501c3 in the U.S. And so we do really, you know, rely on, on, on our, on our community. Well, I, I want to give Liz and T1 International credit because I, you know, when I had her on the podcast all those years ago, the biggest challenges in my life with diabetes were dealing with long lines at the pharmacy and the cost of prescription drugs and the cost of, of health insurance. And in that interview, she had brought up stories about patients in Syria who were literally walking across minefields to get syringes and and test strips to be able to maybe test their insulin or test, test their blood sugar once a week. And so that gave me a, a shift in my global view of diabetes does not look the same for everybody. Yes, things need to dramatically improve here in the U.S., but there are, you know, people in Eritrea, for example, and not Eritrea, the co-host and producer, Eritrea, the country who, you know, don't live the same life with diabetes that we do here. And so it's important to take that global lens and the global summit, probably a great opportunity for folks who are, you know, are interested in hearing what life is like for diabetes with diabetes for people across the world. So yeah, an awesome opportunity for you guys to, to learn more there. So again, congrats on, on 10 years and say hello to the rest of the T1 International team for us. This episode was produced by Eritrea Musa. It's published and syndicated by Ashley Bright and our partners at Exhale Creative creating the social media clips. We'll see you guys next time.